Psalm 3 this evening, we're just going to look at verses 3 and 4. Last week we started to look at Psalm 3. We saw that uh, King David had fled from Absalom, his son, who had declared himself to be the king of Israel, having stolen the hearts of all the people. Do you remember? He would intercept them as they went to David for judgment in, in legal matters. And Absalom, he would take hold of them and give them a big kiss instead of expecting them to bow down and and uh, acknowledge him as a prince of Israel. And also he had incredibly good looks. So with all of these things going for him, he won the hearts, he stole the hearts of the people. David, who before and during his reign had shown himself to be a strong and courageous fighter, a military leader, fled with just a small number of men who remained loyal to him. In the sight of his fickle and disloyal subjects, he would have appeared to have been utterly forsaken by God, a pathetic figure as he fled Jerusalem. As David himself said in in verse 2, Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. However, things aren't always what they seem, are they? And that most certainly was the case with King David. Just look at the very next verse, verse 3. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. Verse 3 starts with that word, but. Do you know, when I was at school, a long time ago now, my English teacher told me that I shouldn't start a sentence with but. Well, you've got the verse 3 starting with but in the King James Version of the Bible. And that word but is so important, isn't it? In prayer to God, David said, But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. That was in response to verse 2, what the people were saying in verse 2. Those people who say, There is no help for him in God. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. So much for all those people who imagine that David had no help from God. How wrong they were. David was a man of war. He would have appreciated the importance of having the protection of a shield. And ultimately, he was acknowledging that the Lord, Jehovah God, was his shield. The Old Testament has many verses that speak of the Lord as a shield surrounding his people and protecting them. There's There are plenty. I've selected a couple of examples here. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1, the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said to him, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 29, concerning the Israelites of old, It is written, Happy are you, O Israel, 
Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty? Your enemies shall submit to you and you shall tread down their high places. Also in verse 3, we read that not only was the Lord a shield for David, but also we read that the Lord was his glory and the lifter up of his head. What that means is that, that despite being rejected by so many people, David was still counting the blessings that he had received from the giver of every good gift, every perfect gift with from God, from the one with whom there is no variation of or shadow of turning, despite fleeing Jerusalem. David still acknowledged and praised the Lord who had chosen him from all Israel. He must have remembered these things. He was chosen from all Israel, the youngest of the eight sons of Jesse, and nothing but a shepherd boy. And he was chosen by the Lord to succeed Saul as king. That didn't just happen. The Lord chose him to be king. It was God who gave the kingdom to David and it was God who had exalted him. The Lord had preserved David wherever he went and had given him the victory over all his enemies. Therefore, the Lord really was David's glory. And even during that terrible time of rejection that we're reading about in Psalm 3, despite all his sorrows, he had every reason to rejoice. Rejoicing in tribulation, rejoicing in sorrow. And David had every reason to do so and to claim the Lord as the lifter up of his head. David was confident that the Lord was able to able to deliver him from all his foes and restore to him his kingdom. And so we read there in verse 3, the Lord being a shield for David, the Lord being his glory, and the Lord being the lifter up of his head, the one who was able to restore everything to David. Spurgeon observed what he called a divine trio of mercies contained in verse 3. Defence for the defenceless. That comes from the Lord being a shield for David. Glory for the despised, in that the Lord was the glory for David, or of David. And joy for the comfortless, in that the Lord was the lifter up of David's head. Defence for the defenceless, glory for the despised, and joy for the comfortless. And those divine mercies are the portion for all who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. What we read of David here, you can claim for yourself if you are trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. For example, with regards to the Lord being a defence for the defenceless, the Bible commentators speak with one voice. I know it says, in, certainly it says in my version here, in verse 3, but thou art, O Lord, art a shield for me, 
but they're all of one voice when they say that the, the, the meaning of the original is that the Lord is a shield around him or surrounding him, surrounding David. And that is most certainly the case if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, having trusted him as your saviour from sin, that he is a shield, a shield rather, not just for you, but he is a Lord, uh, a shield around you. You really can think of God as surrounding you and shielding you. For example, the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, said of his sheep, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Can you think of any greater shield to surround you than the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ being in his hand? And the hand of his father? I most certainly cannot. Safe and secure in the hand of almighty God. That is you if you belong to Jesus. Also the Lord has provided you with a shield to extinguish the fiery darts of the wicked. And that shield is what Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 16 calls the shield of faith. And with that shield, you are to extinguish the inflaming lust, pride, revenge, anger, and all the various other evil thoughts that emanate from or come from your heart. And ultimately, they come from your heart and they come from the evil one. The way to make use of your shield of faith and to extinguish those fiery temptations is by looking unto Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of your most holy Christian faith. And consider his Calvary love for you as you prayerfully read the scriptures. We've been here before when we looked at Psalm 1. Read the scriptures Let his word richly dwell in you as you meditate upon his words and as you do his words. That is how you keep focused upon Jesus. And that is how you extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. Satan and his demons and the unbelieving people of this wicked world who do Satan's bidding and not forgetting your own wretchedness. They are all to be stopped in their tracks. They are all to be extinguished by faith in God and in his gospel gospel promises, which have been sealed with the precious blood of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Claiming those promises for yourself as someone who is trusting in Jesus for forgiveness. That is your shield of faith with which you extinguish the fiery darts of the evil. Trusting in Jesus. The Lord is the glory for the despised. That's the second thing in this uh, trio of things that Spurgeon observed. 
the divine trio of mercies, the second one, glory for the despised, inasmuch when he delivered you out of the devil's dark domain, where you were once held captive to sin, he transferred you into the kingdom of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord brought you up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set your feet upon the rock whose name is Jesus. You who were once dead in trespasses and sins, the Lord has raised up and he has made you to sit in heavenly places in his dear Son. You who were once far from God are now a royal priest with your citizenship in heaven. You belong to a holy nation and God who was once your enemy is now your loving Father in heaven. Most certainly, God is your glory. He has raised you up. Your sins are forgiven. You have everlasting life. You have treasures in heaven. How great are those treasures that you have in heaven, Christian? Nearly as good as all the treasures of this world. Infinitely greater than all the treasures of this world. And I'm just talking about one single Christian here. If you belong to Jesus, you have treasures that this world knows nothing about. You are far richer than all, you have more riches than all the riches of this world. And the greatest treasure of all is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that, how precious Jesus is. Without question, the Lord is your glory. Also, the Lord is a joy for the comfortless. Consider the Apostle Paul and his travelling travelling companion Silas. There was a time when they were scourged They were cast into a dungeon and their feet were secured in stocks. What a pitiful sight. If ever people would have thought God has forsaken those two, look at them. Pathetic individuals they are. In stocks, in a dungeon, in Philippi. Were they downcast and despairing? Not at all. Acts chapter 16 and verse 25 tells us that they prayed and they sung praises unto God and the prisoners heard them as they sung praises to God within that dungeon. You too are to rejoice in your various tribulations, whatever they may be, how horrible they might be. Rejoice! And sing God's praises. And during those times when you suffer the reproach of Christ, rejoice and be exceeding glad. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, he gives you his joy. And because it is a joy of divine origin, it is a joy that will endure even in the most terrible times of tribulation. Let's have a look at verse 4. 
I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. This verse is about a prayer of David, but it was not a silent prayer. David cried unto the Lord with his voice. It was an audible cry to God. I'm sure I'm not the only one who prays silently, without voice at certain times and in various places as I commit to the Lord the various challenging situations that I find myself in. Maybe when I'm talking to someone, even as I'm talking to that person, I'm silently praying to God for wisdom. Or else I'm praying that God would deliver me from the jaws of the lion or from the fiery furnace when I'm in a difficult situation. (coughs) It's not always quite so dramatic. Sometimes I'll just pray silently that God will be glorified in whatever I happen to be doing at the time, or I'll pray to God silently uh, and give thanks before starting a meal. In the Bible, there were those who silently prayed to the Lord. For example, there was a time when a woman whose womb the Lord had shut up prayed that the Lord would give her a child. Her name was Hannah, and we're told that Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Even though her prayer was silent, the Lord heard her prayer, and the Lord gave her a man-child, according to her prayer to him. Another one was Nehemiah. He was a Jew, and he was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. It's worth turning with me to the book of Nehemiah. This is really quite an interesting one, if you can find it. The book of Nehemiah. And just the first chapter. It's, if you do, if you do look for it, it's just um, back a few, not so many pages. I'll read it anyway. Sorry, verse uh, chapter 2. I'm just going to read a few verses from chapter 2. As I say, Nehemiah, he was cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. The Persians, they, it was their empire at the time. Chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Nehemiah speaking, of course. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live for ever. Why should not my countenance be sad, when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? 
So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favour in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. Let's just look at verse 4 there. The king said to Nehemiah, For what dost thou make request? Then we read, So I prayed to the God of heaven, verse 5, And I said unto the king, How long do you think that prayer lasted? A split second? Literally, maybe a second at the most. The king had just asked him a question. The king was waiting for an answer. And yet in that split second, Nehemiah prayed to the Lord. He opened his heart to God. And God heard his prayer. And Nehemiah became the governor in Jerusalem. And he oversaw the the rebuilding of Jerusalem. A split second prayer. And that reminds me, I've said it before, a split second prayer of mine years ago when I was working in the most terrible school in the whole world in London and I'd completely lost control of my class and they were doing everything but swinging from the lights, throwing chairs across the classroom. It was like a battleground and I felt myself slowly having a break well not slowly I felt myself having a breakdown and I just turned my back to the class and I prayed a split second prayer long enough to say Lord help me and that class fell silent no one knew I prayed and I was desperate and at least for the rest of that lesson there was silence Peace was restored and I have no doubt that the Lord heard and answered my silent prayer. Clearly the Lord does not need to hear our voices when we pray. In fact he knows what is weighing heavy in our hearts and on our minds even before we utter the first word. Even so, there are times when you pray out loud, such as at prayer meetings, when it's pretty obvious why we pray out loud at prayer meetings. It's because they are prayer meetings. When someone prays, that person needs to pray so that others can hear. And then that prayer becomes their prayer. And at the end of the prayer, everybody says Amen. It makes sense, doesn't it? One prays and it becomes the prayer of everyone who comes to the prayer meeting. So that's a time when we pray out loud. And that is a legitimate time to pray out loud. Furthermore, as we see here in our psalm, Psalm 3 and verse 4, there are times when the prayer reaches heaven as an audible cry. Not just a loud prayer, but an audible cry. It's as if your anguish is so great that you just want your prayer to be heard as it reaches heaven. You want your prayer to be heard above all the other prayers that are being prayed in the world. Because as you see it, your prayer is more is so much more important because of what you're going through at the time. And you pray with that cry to heaven. 
The most notable example of an audible cry to God is the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. The Greek word that is translated fear in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, that word fear only appears twice in the New Testament. And it describes a reverent submission to God's will. That just about sums up everything Jesus did when he was in the world, doesn't it? When you study the Gospels, uh, you, you reach that conclusion pretty quickly that everything that Jesus did, he did with a reverent submission to his Father. It was the food of the Lord Jesus Christ to do the will of his Heavenly Father. Not long before the incarnate Son of God was nailed to a wooden cross where he would suffer above and beyond anything that we can ever imagine, Jesus prayed, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup containing the collective sins of all whom he came to save did not pass from Jesus. Let me just read that prayer of Jesus again. O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup did not pass from Jesus. Even so, his prayer was answered. His prayer was heard in that he feared he had that reverent uh, submission to God. His strong crying and tears were answered in that God's will was accomplished. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And it was God's will. It pleased the Lord to bruise him and to lay upon him the iniquity of those he came to save. Your sin was laid upon Jesus at the cross if you belong to him. God's will was accomplished and God was glorified at Calvary's cross. I'm going to finish now and just say that when your prayer to God is with tears and it is louder than anybody else's prayers because as you because you are as you see it suffering far more than anyone else pray above all else that God will be glorified in whatever it is that you are going through to God be the glory remember this is the God who is a shield for you he is your glory and he is the lifter up of your head. If you belong to Jesus, having trusted in him as the one who laid down his life at Calvary's cross. Amen.